0: Hi, so I'm Cheryl Cadley. Uh, I'm the former chief exec of Eve Sleep PLC. And my biggest leadership lesson, it's knowing what's within your control and what's not within your control. and Making sure that you manage those things separately. You can't control the weather. You can make sure you wear the right coat. So don't blame yourself for the weather but take the right actions to manage what's around you.
1: Hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today.
2: And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today.
1: This episode's topic is about stunted growth. As the country suffers from the cost of living crisis and a cost of doing business crisis, it's perhaps no surprise that last week we learned that insolvencies have reached the highest level since 2009. That's according to data from the Insolvency Service, the government's agency that deals with bankruptcies and companies in liquidation. The total number of registered insolvencies last year was 22,109, which is a 55% increase on 2021. 2021 no doubt partly prompted by the government's winding up of their pandemic support for businesses. Some of those businesses have been high-profile casualties, particularly in the retail sector. Paper Chase is the latest to fall into administration, with its brand but not its stores being bought by Tesco. It joins a list of businesses including Made.com, Jules, Misguided and Eve Sleep. On today's podcast, we've interviewed Eve Sleep's former chief exec, Cheryl Calvary. At the start of January 2022, Eve Sleep's management team had pulled off an impressive turnaround project and was on track to break even for the first time. But by November, the share price had fallen by 90%, orders had dried up and after unsuccessful sale talks, the business entered administration in October with 21 staff losing their jobs. The brand was later rescued by Bensons for Beds. Unfortunately, it's a tale that is already all too common and the recession is predicted to push yet more businesses into the red. Calvary gives a really frank account of what it's like to lead a business that's going into administration. She talks both about the practicalities of what it means in business terms, how you deal with the impact on your team, and also how you cope personally with the failure. But before we get to that, let's talk about the wider landscape for businesses and how the government is, or isn't, trying to boost growth. In a rather scathing article for The Telegraph last month, James Dyson the founder of Britain's leading vacuum brand, said the government's approach to business was stupid and short-sighted. He told the paper that Sunak's government is keeping Britain in a state of COVID inertia, criticising the decision to increase tax on companies. He says the Conservatives seem to think penalising the private sector is a free win at the ballot box and that growth has become a dirty word. What was the response to this, Eilish?
2: We had a couple of comments from CEOs who largely agreed with Dyson's statements James Kirkham, CEO of Iconic, said the government's approach to business is beyond short-sighted and stupid. Businesses are now told we do not want to sell products to Europe with ease, while limits on immigration are pushing prices up and preventing people from working here. Higher prices and lower productivity as a recipe for ruin, not for growth. And we had Kiki McDonough, founder of the jewellery brand of the same name, She also came in with a rather scathing comment saying in all the years I've been running a business I have never seen a conservative government with so little imagination and so reluctant to give us a program for growth. Now with a slightly less scathing attitude Jennifer Black CEO and partner at Special Group London said it does feel like the government is lacking vision.
1: Wow so pretty scathing responses from, from most of it then. Interestingly, shortly after this whole debate kicked off, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, then unveiled his actual growth plan. What did he say and and what should
2: businesses make of it? Yes. So this was a sort of continuation of his vision for a British Silicon Valley, which is an interesting idea, considering that in the last week or so, there have been 51,000 layoffs announced in the actual Silicon Valley (laughs) in the U.S., But Jeremy Hunt made a speech at Bloomberg's head office in the City of London at the end of January, and he talked mostly about the four E's that would be part of his growth plan. Enterprise, especially digital enterprise, was a major part of that growth strategy, the other E's being education, employment and everywhere, which is a code for levelling up. While he admitted to the British economy's weakness, he cited poor productivity, a skills gap and low business investment. He was hesitant to talk of British declinism, which is interesting considering that the IMF has forecast that the UK economy would shrink by 0.6% between the final quarter of 2022 and the final quarter of 2023, making the UK the only major country to slide into a recession this year. But he did come up with some ideas during his speech that could stimulate growth, most notably, a scheme to help startups scale up and pledges for long-term boost in R&D spend. Even the warning not to expect major tax cuts in his March budget does give him some scope to surprise MPs with some minor ones, which makes you think that perhaps his real audience was in fact other Conservative MPs rather than actual businesses. (laughs) Yeah, good point
1: there. So while we're talking about Britain, we've also been talking about other international news, and the big leadership story was obviously Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister stepping down, essentially citing burnout. I think she said she didn't have enough left in the tank. I think that's, a, that's something that a lot of us can um, recognise. Despite her faltering popularity in the country, her resignation still seems to come as a surprise to people. And she was seen as the poster child for this empathetic, kind leadership. So we asked whether that type of leadership adds pressure to leaders and whether that ultimately leads them more at risk of burnout. Eilish, what did you find out when you were writing that story?
2: Well, I received some comments from Dr. Roz Hilari, who's a clinical psychologist at Mental Health and Wellness Clinic, The Soak. And she said that having empathy requires that person to exercise more than just rational thinking. The empathetic person has to put themselves in another person's shoes and understand their viewpoint, regardless of how much it might differ from their own. And there's this added pressure for empathetic leaders to develop solutions that are often aligned with their own needs, but also those of the organisation that they are in charge of and shareholders, which often results in leaders themselves neglecting their own physical and emotional well-being, which then in turn leads to an inability to meet the demands of their role. And this conflict between the personal and professional often results in leaders trying to avoid it at all costs. Mm. Leslie Cooper, founder of Specialist Consultants Working Well, said that leaders often do this by either multitasking or working faster and extending the working day. There's a couple of things that leaders do to try and avoid feeling the effects of burnout. But of course, in this instance, Jacinda very bravely Admitted that burnout was the cause of her resignation. Great. Well, thanks for that, Alish. Um, and now let's move on to our interview
1: with Cheryl Calvary. Thanks for joining us, Cheryl. You're a marketer by background, cutting your teeth at Unilever before moving to Birdseye and then the AA, where you became marketing director. And then in 2018, you joined Eve Sleep as Chief Marketing Officer before being appointed as Chief Exec in May 2020. Let's talk a bit about what the business was like when you joined and when you took over as Chief Exec.
0: Yeah, so uh, I joined Eve very much because I wanted to join a business that was in a state of growth, which was early in its sort of development and where I would have a real sense of the impact of what I was doing as a senior marketer. I think a big corporate career is wonderful for lots of reasons, but as you become more senior, you get further and further away from feeling the impact of what you're doing and further away from learning, therefore. And I'm quite a, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie uh, and I like to learn. I like to see see what I do and the impact it has so, so that I can get a bit better or do different things or try different things. So that was why I joined E very much to to get hands on again. Eve, interestingly, was a turnaround gig. It doesn't look like it was, but the business was heavily loss-making and the remit was very much come in and move us from a heavily loss-making business to a sustainably profitable business uh, whilst maintaining some top-line growth. And that's right at my street. So I tend to do transformation, turnaround, you know, historically with very big old businesses, um, but it's it's sort of the same playbook to an extent.
1: Mm -hmm. And how old was Eve Sleep when you took over?
0: And when I came in as CMO, I think we had our fourth birthday that first year I joined, so I think it was four. Okay, so a young business. Very young business, yeah. very young business. Young business, but had, but had grown very rapidly, had gone through, it, it sort of had gone through an accelerated ageing, if you like. So it had gone from being born and being a startup all the way through to IPOing in less than four years. So it was a remarkable journey. And we had an excellent chairman, a gentleman called Paul Pindar, who was keen to put a management team in who could take the business through the next stage and, and bring it into it. You know, a much more grown up business. I get through the difficult teenage years, mm-hmm. um, which had come very early, and that was the remit. And I think you know, I worked under a brilliant CEO a gentleman called James Sturrock, who's um, over at Tappy Carpets now. And you know, we sort of, along with the rest of my my peers, we just rattled through the business top to bottom. You know, reshaping and transforming everything across the mix from the marketing to the product to the structure and people overheads, proposition, creative delivery, uh, tech platforms. You know, every bit of the business. We systematically restructured to bring it towards something which is much more sustainably profitable. And that was the journey we were on.
1: What were the biggest challenges there? I think the fundamental is understanding
0: the value of being a D2C business, uh, which we were primarily it's 80% of Eve sleep uh, went through D2C, and how you can take that value. So the value of being a D2C business is you have your customer data. That customer data is only valuable in terms of the business revenue and profitability is if you can sell more things to those customers more efficiently as you go forwards. That's the only reason to have customer data. Otherwise, there's no point having it. The challenge you have as a mattress company is that the frequency of purchases is about once every three years. Which doesn't make the most value out of being a D2C business. Mm. You might as well, I mean, there's there's no, you might as well be a wholesale business because, you know, once every three years, three years later, someone is not going to remember, probably wouldn't even remember where they bought their mattress three years ago. So the first and and the biggest question was how do you expand the brand positioning and the product range to make sure that you take the value of that D2C and basically sell people things that meet their needs more frequently than once every three years. Mm-hmm. And then underneath that you have then restructuring every bit of your business. So what do your products look like? What is your CRM, your marketing mix, your creative strategy, your profitability, your financial models, your data, your tech? I mean, everything then needs rebuilding around a business that's no longer a single product vertical, but instead is an e-commerce retailer. Mm-hmm. That basically is what absorbed our time, mm-hmm. you know, and what does the customer experience look like at that? And, you know, what's the right balance between great customer experience and profitability and you know those are the challenges you face what new products did you launch i think when i joined we had mattress and pillows and so we expanded into linens and bed linens duvets and various sort of um, things that go on top of your beds bed frames and then as we built out the sleep wellness positioning which was he was about the great night sleep leaves you feeling brilliant the day after and a much broader wellness positioning we moved into things like weighted blankets we launched a cbd oil business quite a wide range of sleep gifting so really, trying to create a world for customers that would solve their sleep problems, rather than just a mattress business.
1: Perfect. And so, what was the business like when you actually took over as chief exec? Had there been a successful turnaround at that point?
0: It had. We all, so we were well on the journey. Um. So we'd come. We brought the losses in quite dramatically. I'm trying to remember all the numbers now. I'm afraid I'm slightly no longer got the P&Ls in front of me. But we'd come in from. I think we lost 25 million the year I joined. We lost 12 million the year after. We lost from memory, and again, apologies if this is wrong, and going through our financials, about three and a half million the year after. So we brought the the losses in quite dramatically. But then the pandemic had just started, which was obviously throwing our plans up for, for 2020 up in the air. We had no idea. It's hard to think back because now we know what happened in the pandemic. So it all looked very logical mm. that, you know, of course, D2C did well. And of course, you know, homewares did well. So normally we would sell about 100 mattresses a day in the UK, I think in the entire week, we sold 10 mattresses. So we had the first bit of data with the pandemic was, this is going to immediately kill our business overnight because no one is going to buy mattresses because everyone is sitting tight on their cash.
2: Mm. And, you know, then
0: you got into furlough and this and the other. So when I sort of stepped into the CEO seat in the May, we were still running projections, which was, what if the business is half the size it is, quarter of the size it is? You know, what does our cash runway look like? So the the focus was very much around, first of all, dealing with a business that had gone fully remote and working out how to work as that business and how to most importantly maintain our team and our team's culture and energy when suddenly they'd all been packed off. And and again, if you think back, people were working on ironing boards, people were working on the floor. Most people by the end of the pandemic could set up at least a small space where they could work, but people who'd never worked from home were suddenly working from their beds, Mm. you know, weren't able to see friends, you weren't able to go out. I mean, it was just, it was very, very sort stretching and challenging culturally. Mm. So grappling with that and then grappling with what a business might look like that was at very, very different sizes and scales was the priority. As the pandemic
1: evolved, you know, clearly it was very different. Was it daunting taking your first chief exec position in that scenario?
0: When you get offered these these roles, quite often they do come slightly out of the blue or slightly unexpectedly. So I'd always hoped that I could step up to the CEO role within EVE. When I joined EVE, all the things I looked at and thought, yes, this is the sort of business where I might be able to to prove myself as a CEO. But I very much didn't expect it to happen then, mm-hmm. and I remember vividly I was having a one-to-one with my boss James, and I was trying to talk to him about some TV deal with ITV. So i would sort of desperately trying to talk to him about some commercial offer, and he just said, "Look, can I? Do you want to be the CEO of Eve?" And I kind of, went, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that'd be lovely. Yeah, one day. But can we just this ITV thing? Right? It's really because we've got to get this closed out." <laughs> and he's like, "No, no. Do you want to be the CEO of Eve now?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Um." what he's like yeah because and he had he was planning to move to tappy and he said but because we're a listed company if you say yes and if i'm moving we have to do it very quickly because it's market sensitive information and we Mm -hmm. can't sit on that information and he said you can't tell anyone because also market sensitive information which is great so it's like ah so that's quite a daunting offer we're a pandemic i can't see anyone face to face i can't tell anyone I phoned a couple of mates, as you do, yes. um and sort of said, hypothetical where this might have happened, but obviously it hasn't happened. What, what do you think? <laughs> and one of my friends said to me, which I thought was was brilliant and I still remember it, he said, if you're going to do your first CEO job, better do it in a business that you know with the stabilizers on. Which this very much was because I, I knew the business really well. You know, I'm two years in. Mm-hmm. Uh James, my CEO, was staying on on my board, so I had my kind of stabilizers on. So was I daunted? Not as much as you'd
1: perhaps think, actually. So let's fast forward to the end then. In 2022, the share price fell more than 90%. And unfortunately, in October, after various initial conversations to sell the business, Eve fell into administration. And as I understand it, the 21 staff that were remaining lost their jobs. It was then rescued from administration by Benson for Beds. You released a statement at the time saying, the scale of EVE was simply insufficient to withstand the economic tsunami that has gathered momentum over the past six months. We have moved heaven and earth to seek a way forward as an independent or acquired business, but ultimately, prevailing market conditions could just not support that. So there's loads to unpack here, but let's start with what happened and why you think it did happen.
0: I mean, quite frankly, the market just disappeared from under our feet. So we came into the year having felt we'd completed the rebuild strategy. So Everything that we'd sought to build and put in place and drive for efficiency was there. We were ready for growth. We had internal targets of 32% growth and break even this year. Externally, our targets were 10% growth and losing, I'm going to say, one and a half million. Now, if we'd hit either of those targets, I mean, I think we'd have been front page of the business press. We'd have have proved, proved it. And certainly if we'd done 32 and zero, my goodness me. It would have been champagne breakfast all around, yeah? It would have been, and what we as a team had fought for, built, sweated, cried, laughed, you know, for years to get to. By the end of January, we were 28% up, bang on target at the bottom line and ahead at the top line. And me, myself and the exec team and, and the whole team, we looked at each other and went, this is happening. This is this is happening, right? This is it, right? We've done it. We, it everything is coming home. It's amazing and we had brought in a partner to help us hire the people that we knew we needed to hit for the growth you know we were literally in that wonderful place of going you know it's happening we'd done a load of work on what a digital sleep wellness app could look like so that was a concept phase and I was already start building a front end app which would pivot the business and access completely different funding I mean we were getting back into the office three days a week it was it was all happening great and then uh By the end of February, so literally Putin invades on whatever there was, 20 something for February. By the end of February, we are 15% down. So we've gone 28% up to 15% down in four weeks. And actually, it was the last two weeks. So the first two weeks of February were fine, although they were a little bit flat because I think there was a bit of noise and they were slightly off and then turned. By the end of March, and again, I'm trying to remember the numbers, we were about 30% down. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And, you know, I I talked to my chairman about this because I didn't... I didn't scramble the jets until April. And I go back and go, should I have scrambled the jets sooner? But I think if I'd sat in front of my board and said, well, I know we were 28% up, but I've had two weeks of data that tell me we're now not. I think I should restructure the business and make a load of redundancies. My board would have gone, you're nuts. That's really knee jerk. Yeah. I think you need to wait because we're grown-ups and because this has never happened before. Mm -hmm. So. Just been through a pandemic. That had never happened before. And now we're in a market conditions that none of us have ever seen. None of us have ever seen. I mean, the homewares market by the end of April was nearly 40% down. This is a £12 billion market. Like I didn't think a market could do that, certainly not in a fairly stable country like the UK. I'm sure it
1: can do that in, in emerging markets. Sorry, just to clarify, when you say it had dropped by that much, is that just orders had stopped? Yeah. So orders just literally stopped overnight? Yeah. Right. So conversion rate dropped. If you look, so there's loads of metrics you look at. But if you look at SEO,
0: it's organic traffic. So the number of people who just search for mattress, mm-hmm. that had dropped by about 60%. Wow. Which is probably your sort of clearest read of, oh, people buying mattresses. People literally weren't searching for. And there's, and there's very little you can do. I mean, 80% of our business is still going through mattresses at this point. And, and then a load of it is going through bed frames. And that had dropped even more. Because if you didn't need a mattress, you certainly didn't need a bed frame. <laughs> so the market just disappeared from under our feet. So we scrambled the jets. April, really, we probably kicked off a, right, we've got to absolutely do everything to strip cost and, and rebuild the business. We resourced all of our products. We restructured all of our team, went through very wide ranging redundancies. We went through all of our financial structures. We pulled out a whole load of overheads. We pulled out all sort of cultural benefits. We did everything. We put, we exited every single contract we could exit we had taken decisions in January on the base of a successful business. So in February, we'd taken out, uh, for example, a year's sponsorship of Late Nights on Channel Four. You know, that's board—that's that's a year's TV advertising board, which was great value at the time because TV advertising was inflating, and it was a great decision to make in a stable market condition with stable demand. But we didn't—we didn't have that. So we'd signed a two-year lease on our office the previous August. You know, that's, that's two years of office we have to pay for; we can't exit the office. So wherever you looked, there were costs that. You know, we we exited everything we could, Mm. but fundamentally, this is this is an ongoing business, and we've signed two-year, three-year contracts with people. We aren't we aren't behaving like a startup, signing three-month contracts. So we we worked incredibly hard. At the same time, we'd had investors approach us in January, looking to buy the business, private investors, and we'd been talking to those guys in a you know an ongoing basis on the basis of we weren't at that point launching a sale process, but these guys looked the right guys to to take. And we always intended to sort of go private at the end of the year anyway. But I did off the back of a successful year, and we realised we were going to have to kick off a formal sale process because we needed, very clearly needed an injection of funds to see us through this difficult period. It wasn't it wasn't easing off at any great pace. So June, July, the market was still down. We'd done an awful lot of restructuring and pulled our cash burn in very dramatically, but it takes time. So if you do redundancies in June, uh, you don't realise the value of that until October. And we could see our cash depleting.
1: And at this point, were the orders still at the same depressed level as they were in February, or were they beginning to improve?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there was there was some improvement. We were working incredibly hard on pricing. We would discount very heavily to try and find a sweet spot that could drive pricing. We also had underlying product cost inflation. So I don't know if you remember, but at this time, also there was huge inflation in, in costs. It's still going on in a lot of markets. You've got logistics cost inflation. And at the same time, marketing costs were going through the roof. So one of the challenges is that a lot of D2C businesses raised money in the pandemic. So people like Kazoo and Cinch and Deliveroo and just, you know, insert D2C business. Mm-hmm. And all that money was flooding into the, the media market over quarter one and quarter two. So TV costs and, and search costs were going through the roof. So you had a perfect storm of cost of doing business going up, cost of product going up, demand dropping. And there had been also wage inflation. So you've you got everything coming perfect storm
1: yeah
0: (laughs) absolutely which is why i described it as a tsunami of market conditions i mean market conditions in the wider sense you know from supply side to cost
1: right now take me to
0: october we then spent sort of six months in a very very emotionally stretching place i don't think i've ever had to straddle such a wide emotional range from minute to minute so on the one hand talking to lots of investors and i must have spoken to over 200 investors over the space of about six months all of whom were interested in buying the business. We had three indicative offers. And all that is a lot of work, a lot of work, particularly on my CFO as well. Uh, a lot of meetings, a lot of presentations. I described it as it's being it's like being on a constant viva on your business. So you go into a meeting, and I remember vividly at one investor meeting, the guy says, if we go back to 2019, I see that your pillow attachment rate doubled in March. Can you just tell me why that was?
2: <laughs> hmm.
0: Yes. <laughs> so you, you, there's, there's lots of that sort of stuff you're, you know you're doing and l- luckily I've got quite a quite a good memory and I'm quite I'm quite nimble on my feet so I think we got through most of it but you are like this is this is, wow. this is like yeah a... you know, I'm doing a PhD on my business and it's exhausting so you do a lot of that <laughs> uh, and a lot of sort of toe-to-toeing with various people and, and also it's quite emotionally up and down because you have great meetings and then they'll go yeah we want to meet you again or they won't or they'll put an offer down but then they don't bag it up so it's you know and you've got board meetings and you've got meetings with And then in the middle of it all, trying to continue to serve customers, but serve customers with a team that's depleting because we've been through redundancies. How many redundancies did you make? I can't remember. I'm going to say it was about 25 to 30%. Okay. Can't remember exactly, but it was that sort of number. So we went from a team of about 65-odd to a team of about Mm 45-odd back in June. So you've got a depleted team, and and you're dealing with the cultural fallout. The redundancies are awful, uh, and they're emotional. So we always celebrate people leaving EVE, right? EVE is a place you come and you spend your time and you learn, and then we celebrate you moving on to great new things. And, you, and it's very hard to do that with redundancies. So it, it knocks the stuffing out of both the people leaving and the people who are there. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with sort of that real cultural low. But people, we, we need to keep serving customers. We need to do everything we can to continue serving, but we're having to deconstruct the business. So everyone comes to work to build and, build and do great things. And actually what we're doing is we are, Exiting product lines, we're pulling out of projects, we're cancelling projects. So the sort of positive energy is very low. On the other side, you know, sort of the worst bit of it is you're also dealing with, particularly as you came towards the end, you're dealing with the fact that you've got a cash runway that's running out and you're dealing with suppliers that you're not paying on time. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with staff looking you in the eye and saying, well, have I got a job in October? And having to say, I genuinely don't know, but I promise you we're paying you next week. So the emotional stretch of going from those conversations to jazz hands, look at the amazing business. Come on, investors, this is, this is a huge opportunity. All we needed was a couple of million. It's, I mean, Benson's and Beds have got the deal of the century on this business, and I think they know that. Mm. And, and, and look, I think people can do it in different ways. I mean, we are, as a business, and I as a leader and my exec team as a team are incredibly transparent and honest and heartfelt people. So we, the whole process, as much as we could by law, We kept the team completely involved and up to speed. That meant that all the emotion of the process happened continually through the process. That meant eight months of emotional stretch. Wow. But it meant we'd done the right thing by everyone. So you know, when the end came, most people had secured new roles. We'd given them lots of warning. We'd supported them in securing new roles. So I think whilst there was 21 jobs lost, I think there was only about five or six people, of which myself and my CFO and my COO were three because we had to focus on the business. We didn't have jobs to go to lined up.
1: And was there a moment during that period where you thought, okay, it's over?
0: You're running a weekly cash flow model. And we've been running a weekly cash flow model since June. So every Monday morning, well, indeed, every day, (laughs) this thing was constantly updating as we we had information coming and going, costs going up and down and and sales going down. So we always knew at any point in time what the likely end date was. But that Mm -hmm. end date was moving. So the hardest thing for my team is the team kept saying, "When do we run out of cash?" And I said, "Well, if you look at it today, we run out of cash on X date. Mm-hmm. But by the way, tomorrow that date will have gone out three weeks because we're doing this and this and this. So it, it's a moving feast. And there is, you know, there are definitely moments where you, where we thought, I thought we could trade through this. And you know, I think, I think the September we would managed to pull the cash burn into one hundred and twenty thousand. All we lost in September was, I think, one hundred and twenty thousand pounds or one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Mm. So you, you can. You're so close to break even at that point. Oh, it's so frustrating. At that point, we had about
1: five hundred thousand pounds left in the bank. So you, you just not got what you need. It was. We were so close. So close. So tell me about the moment where you had to get the team together and decide that administration was the only option.
0: So we brought our advisors on
1: in September because
0: you are balancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, And anyone who goes through this will will know this this very painfully. So you're balancing three different needs. So normally as a CEO, your number one priority is to, to create shareholder value. And that is your obligation, your fiduciary duty to generate shareholder value. So you protect shareholders above all else. When you come to a point where there's a risk, the business will not be solvent. Your duty switches to protect creditors. So you now have to protect creditors ahead of shareholders. But you must protect all creditors equally. So you cannot say, I'll pay my staff but I won't pay a supplier unless you have good reason. And if there's a view that you have not protected creditors equally, then the creditors could sue you. Individual creditors could say, hang on a minute, you paid these people, but you didn't pay me. You should have paid me. So you're balancing the creditors. You've still got the shareholders that could say that you'd mismanaged the business. So they could sue you for mismanaging the business. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of trying to balance these these two things off. And then obviously you've got customers that you're, you're needing to serve and, and deliver product to as well in the middle. So you, we brought our administration advisors on board fairly early because we weren't i was very very uncomfortable with making we as a team of making creditor decisions because every week you're making decisions on who you're going to pay and i wanted to make mm-hmm. sure those decisions were supported by advisors and at no point could were we left sort of hanging yeah. if you like and at risk of, of doing the wrong thing by any one creditor so they, we brought them on board i'm trying to think but i think it was early september and then the point at which you you decide to put the business into administration again is it's a difficult one because it's a question of, is the business solvent? Can the business pay its debts? What's the cash flow looking like? And every week there's money. Every week there's another half million quid coming into the business. So every week the business can go forwards again, but it's about how much you owe at that point and at that point that becomes
1: untenable. Unfortunately, your tale has become all too common. In the UK, the era of cheap money is over. There are a lot of zombie businesses that are expected to fold. And then there are businesses like yours that are doing very well and then suddenly have the rug pulled from under them. So looking back on it now, do you think there's anything that you or the business could have done differently to avoid ending up in that situation? And I'm sure there'll be lots of business leaders listening to this now thinking, what can I learn from this situation? What can I do differently to avoid that same fate?
0: I think when I next go into a business, the first thing I will do is understand absolutely in minute detail the cost base and the flexibility of that cost base. So I think the last time we had economic upset, which was, what was it, the dot-com bubble, which is, what, 2008, maybe? Mm -hmm. You know, I was very early in my career and I wasn't close enough to a a business P&L to making big commercial decisions on that. So it's the first period of real unrest and instability. I think knowing exactly what percentage of your cost base you can exit at speed Mm -hmm. and making sure that percentage of your cost base is is relatively high is absolutely key to deal with with uncertainty. Um, So I would recommend any leader have a proper session with their cfo and whoever else in their their business really earns a material amount of cost and go right through and and, and allocate every single bit of the cost base with its flexibility you know how much what's on a one-year contract what's on a two-year contract what's on a three-year contract what could you exit with three months what could you exit tomorrow what would that look like and then step back and look at that proportions and if you've got a very high proportion of your business on a long-term fixed cost base as in you can't exit it fairly quickly Mm. do everything you can to change that as soon as you can so, I would definitely do that. I think understanding properly where costs that are spread around the business sit, so it wasn't really until we got into this that I realized we had about half a million public company costs because you have bits of costs in the marketing budget, you've got bits of costs over here in audit, you've got bits of costs over here in payroll, you know you've got some 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 platforms over here you're paying for, and it's not often you sit right back and go the things that are driving costs in the business if I have all the costs together or, what are the cost you know if I could go back in time, I think we would go we would try and go private sooner but i mean it would have been that would have been then the wrong conversation to have with shareholders because they would have said well, why are you going private now when the business will be worth a lot more after a good year so it is difficult mm-hmm. i think redundancies are hard really hard and i know everyone always says this but it is true go once go hard go deep mm-hmm. we would come to a period where it was impossible to hire and everyone was looking for wage inflation i remember the pandemic there was this mass move wages at the roof you couldn't hire anyone so we were almost in this cultural space of uh, almost scared, not scared to get rid of people, but getting rid of people meant a real headache if you needed a person back. Yeah, Actually, that changed very quickly and it has completely changed now. So you are much better and it's awful because these are brilliant people that you've, you've hired and developed and made your team. So this is getting rid of the business, which is horrid. But you're much better to go hard and go deep. And that is also much fairer on the people. The people who stayed with Eve to the end and honestly, the, the loyalty that people gave us was incredible. And people just looked me in the eye and said, we're just staying because it's the right thing to do. It was some of the hardest things. But the people that stayed to the end, they've got no redundancy payout. They've got nothing. So they would have been better to go in the redundancy when at least we were paying a redundancy payout. So there's a there's an element of, of cruel to be kind. I would urge people to do this with honesty and transparency. It is incredibly hard to do it with honesty and transparency, you will cry in front of your team, well, you will if you're a human, Mm -hmm. but do it that way and give people the chance to make the right choices for themselves rather than you making the choices for them Mm -hmm. because then they can make better supported choices and they will be angry and they'll be upset, but better that emotion is together and the team are amazing and they put their arms around each other and they supported each other and at no point did anyone point any fingers and fingers could have been pointed but no one turned to anyone else and said, you know, you fucked this up. We were together and they were amazing.
1: So how did it feel personally to lead that? I'm conscious this is your first chief exec role and you did a very good turnaround um, job and that must have felt really good and positive at the beginning of the year. But going from such a high to then such a low, dealing with all of that sounds so stressful, upsetting, frustrating. You know, how did you deal with that toll personally?
0: I don't know, really. I I mean, I was talking to Nicola over at MAID, actually, I didn't sleep a lot. I didn't eat a lot. I lost about half a stone. So, you know, highly recommend the uh, business going bust diet. diet. It's just about the most effective diet I've ever done. People are saying, gosh, you look amazing. I'm like, yeah, because I'm like stone lighter than normal. Um, I had to stop drinking. That sounds like I'm a heavy drinker, but I couldn't have more than a couple of glasses of wine before getting very emotional. So, So personally for me, I think you have to do everything you can to give yourself emotional resilience. I sat through an entire board meeting uh, in tears, which was, we just carried on the meeting because the meeting needed to be run. But I was very aware that I was, just had tears streaming down my face. So I think you have to accept that you are carrying a lot of emotion and let those emotions sort of be, mm-hmm. but be resilient through them. And I think you, you know what is in front of you and you have to go up each day and do what's in front of you. You need to go through administration or go bankrupt in the same way as you've done everything else as a leader. So it's the same values, right? I almost set out to say, we're going to do this in the best way possible. We're going to do right by people because that's core to our values. We're going to keep smiling if we can because that's core to our values. And we're going to do the right thing by this brand. And we're going to do this in the best way possible. So I'm going to keep answering the phone. And you just got to keep being honest. I think the most important thing, and this sounds really weird, is it is not your fault. It is not your fault. It's no one person's fault. If a business goes into administration, it is no one person's fault unless someone's done something fraudulent uh, in (laughs) which case it is their fault Um, so you're all in this together you all made collective decisions that got you there you're all going to do your best to get yourself through this when you accept it's not your fault you then are not defensive about it which is really important as soon as you start to defend you then tie your own self with it and then you'll destroy yourself so it's really important to remember that right no one no one makes deliberate bad decisions
1: Mm. in life I think that's really good advice. You know, don't personalise the failure. Don't take that on as you personally having a problem.
0: You personalise how you do it, right? Yeah. How do you manage it? That is yeah. intent- very personal. And definitely hold that tight to yourself and look at yourself each day in the mirror and go, did I manage that right? Did I manage that the way I wanted to manage that? Am I proud of myself today? And am I proud of the team today? But what's going on is not your fault. We are in a crazy world.
2: Mm.
1: I think that's good advice as well because you have agency even in that situation you know, you still have control and you can still choose how you behave. I think that's a very empowering message you know it's not all these bad things being done to you you have a way of behaving and a choice um, and I think that can be difficult as well because people always say they have values but to consistently keep those values at a time of great pressure is really commendable. Um, so what came next for you? <laughs> what is coming next? what is coming next um, how did you what have you done what is coming next what came next so so
0: well when when the business went into administration i i sort of hit the wall fairly hard all the stress and emotion i've been carrying for eight months sort of came out and i i hid under the covers and i put my phone in a drawer for a week or so and actually the the outpouring of support and care was remarkable at the time i couldn't really uh, read any messages because they were just upsetting me more but it's very lovely uh everyone was very lovely and what comes next? I don't know. So I think all the team are now into roles. The brand is with Benson's and they've got an absolute steal. So for, for £600,000, so less than the price of a, of a, of a very small house in London, <laughs> they have bought a brilliant brand with 30% brand awareness that was doing 30 million in revenue. So I, I wish them all the luck in the world. They've, uh, the, we have the final poignant moment. So we have a, a, a little sloth, which is our TV ad. And I've got the puppet sloth, which we make the ad with. But it's quite expensive thing to make so he's here at home ready to go to Benson's and the post bag turned up yesterday to put him into to send him to Benson's that's the final asset going to Benson's when I go to the post office this morning Um, I know I know I know and do you know what I should have posted him earlier this week and I haven't so I don't know what next I'm reflecting a lot I think one thing I will say and anyone again that goes through it is it doesn't have to take a lot out of you so I've got my probably minor PTSD at the moment for for zoom calls so I don't have the legs to go immediately for another another big CEO gig. I'm exploring a startup in a social enterprise space with a, with a mate, um, which is quite exciting. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking for how I can bring my experience to help some other businesses. So I'm looking to how I can do advisory work with scaling businesses, small businesses, young businesses, businesses going through this sort of crisis. I'm training as an exec coach, which I think will be hugely valued to try and help some other leaders through this. And I'm picking my kids up and dropping them off at school for the first time in their lives. <laughs> and I made my eight-year-old a birthday cake for the first time ever. So I'm sort of pretending to be a bit more of a of a of a of a normal
1: human being, a bit less of a of a robot. Great. But has it put you off being a chief exec in the future?
0: No. I am reflecting long and hard on where we are as a society and culture. And I think this very painful reshaping we're going through at the moment is going to be painful and is bloodbath. And a lot of people are going to get very hurt and I think it's needed. I think we'd got to a place where we were, you know, last days of Rome, we were overblown in our consumerism. and You know, we had to, if there's a food sharing, there's an app called Olio, which is invented to help you share the food you don't get around to eating. Mm-hmm. A society that has to invent an app to share its spare food because it's over-consuming so much. That is symbolic, I think, of where we had got to. Mm-hmm. So I think this reset is needed. And I think the economy and culture will grow out in a very different way. I think social enterprise and community much more at the heart and the business I'm building with a a mate is a a social enterprise community-based business so I'm definitely not apart from being a chief exec again but I think if someone came to tomorrow and said look I've got a super high growth business which has got massive margins which has got huge VC funding and it really needs a chief exec to smash it I think I'd probably go I'm not sure that's what I want to do I think I want a chief exec something which is much more holistic in its impact.
1: Yeah I completely agree the age of abundance is over And I think it'll be interesting to see the shift Um, it it does feel like there's this fundamental change in the business world that we will see playing out in the coming years thank you so much for sharing your story and being so open and honest about it i think first of all that people listening to this will learn a huge amount about how to actually run a business that is in that situation but also i think it'll be a massive help because as you said a lot of people are going to be facing similar situations And hearing how you got through it with grace and courage and came out of it with positivity is such an inspiring story. So thank you so much for sharing that with us.
0: You're very welcome. And if if anyone out there wants to reach out to me who's going through the same thing, I genuinely have an open door.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Cheryl. And best of luck with what you get up to in the future. Thank you. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts.